very few people are remembered after they live, after they die. And if so, they're more than likely not remembered very, very long. Somewhere in a secluded corner of London's Highgate Cemetery, there is a large marble tomb. And the stone monument that's there is now covered in vines and ivy creeping up all over it. But the inscription on the stone monument reads, Erected to the memory of Thomas Sayers. Now, more than likely, you've never heard of the man. But at the time of his death, the situation was very different. It was the winter of 1865, and Tom Sayers, who began his career as an illiterate bricklayer, had really ascended through the ranks to become the most celebrated athlete of the Victorian era. He was England's first bare-knuckle fighting champion. And in his final match, which he largely fought one-handed, he was cheered on literally by the thousands. That match later sort of became the inspiration for the worldwide boxing championship. But for this particular match, there were special trains that were charted all over England as spectators flooded in by the thousands to cheer him on. And included in those numbers were fellow Victorian celebrities such as Charles Dickens, the writer of A Christmas Story, or A Christmas Carol, not The Christmas Story. That's on TV 24-7 right now. (laughs) The Prime Minister of England was also in attendance. British Parliament was suspended so all the leaders of the day could attend the sporting contest. But when Tom Sayers died just a few years after that, his funeral procession was so long that it stretched two miles and it contained more than 100,000 people. Highgate Cemetery literally descended into chaos as people climbed trees and toppled over tombstones hoping for a better view as the famous athlete was laid to rest. But here we are now, 156 years after the fact, and his reputation has turned to dust, and he's remembered only in history, maybe by a few history buffs or boxing aficionados. And to the rest of us, he needs an introduction. And I tell you that to just simply say, very few people after they've lived are remembered for very long, even those who've made great contributions to society, such as politicians or athletes, celebrities. And yet, there is one who stands far above all of the rest as a towering figure in society, the central figure of human history, and that's Jesus Christ. No other human being in history has ever been the focus of so much attention as he has. Twenty centuries later, here we are still considering the monumental impact that his birth has had on the world. We even measure the calendar in terms of the birth of Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bible this morning, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1. Now, we've been working our way through the epistle of 1 John, but this morning I want you to go to the Gospel of John. So don't turn to 1 John, turn to John 1. 
okay? And as we'll see a little bit later on, as we'll work our way through 1 John, we're going to come to a passage where the Apostle John presents his readers with an understanding of who Jesus really is. False teachers in John's day had been making some claims concerning the person of Jesus, denying the Son of God, denying his humanity, and in 1 John, the apostle calls this the essence of an antichrist spirit, which he says is at work in the world. And the reason for that is that the enemy wants to keep the eyes of people blinded to the truth of who Jesus really is. And so before we get into what John says about this antichrist spirit in the world, I want to go back to the first chapter of his gospel where we'll find some of the most profound truth in all of the Bible as it relates to the true identity of Jesus Christ. And this is very important for us to consider, especially when we contemplate the theology of Christmas. Now, I know that more than likely when you think of the Christmas story, we generally turn to those passages in the Bible that give us all of the details that surround the birth of Jesus. For example, we may go to Matthew or we may go to the Gospel of Luke and uh, in those Gospels we'll find all of the details surrounding the events associated with Bethlehem and the manger, the angels announcing the news to the shepherds or the wise men and their visit sometime a bit later. But in the opening verses of John's Gospel, John may not say anything per se about the Lord's birth but he does have something to say about the incarnation, which is really what Christmas is all about. That word incarnation comes from a Latin term, which means in the flesh. And so Christmas is all about how God became human. God took on flesh. The Son of God entered into our world, born as one of us in order to rescue us. And that's what Christmas is all about. So John wants us to know what the nativity really means. Who exactly is this child born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger? Well, this is the question that John really gets at. And so his retelling of the Christmas story goes back much further than Bethlehem. It goes way beyond the visit of the Magi, far beyond the news announced to shepherds, even far beyond Mary and Joseph. John is going to take us all the way back before the dawn of creation into eternity past, before the beginning of time itself. And John tells us of the pre-incarnate word who existed in the beginning, who was with God, and who was God. So let's read just the first few verses of John, the Gospel of John chapter 1. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You can skip on down to verse 14 and notice John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, 
full of grace and full of truth. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the Christ of Christmas. Christmas really is all about Christ. And without Christ, there is no Christmas. But it's important that you and I understand who Jesus Christ really is. And that's what John wants us to understand here in these verses. That's interesting to me that 99% of the Gospels primarily deal with three and a half years of Jesus' life from age 30 to age 33 and a half. And roughly 1% is devoted to the events that happened between those years from his birth uh, and his childhood. We know that though his birth is supernatural, that through his birth and life, Jesus grew like any other child would grow. But at the same time, we also know that he was not like any other child because this child is God in human flesh. And so the Apostle John goes back even further than all of that, and he tells us of the eternal Word of God who has always been. And he says in verse 14 that at a real moment in time, this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, again, this is why the Gospel of John, by so many, has been identified throughout the centuries as the holy of holies of the New Testament. And John is often referred to as such because in the Gospel of John, we see the glory of Jesus Christ fully on display. John presents his readers with an up-close portrait of the Son of God and tells us that he is deity wrapped up in humanity. God in human flesh. Or as the Apostle Paul expresses it in Colossians, he's the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. So in these opening verses, we, we step across the threshold of the Gospel of John and, and immediately we sense that we're in the Holy of Holies beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. So for the remainder of our time this morning, I really want us to just focus on what John has to say about the Christ of Christmas. Who exactly is he according to the Apostle John? Well, notice with me, number one, John says that he is the eternal Lagos through whom creation exists. That word Lagos is the Greek word that's translated in English as word. And John uses this word uh, three times in verse one to let us know who the Christ of Christmas really is. In the beginning was the Lagos, or word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This word logos is an extremely important word. Um, it means reason, explanation. Uh, think about what we mean in English through words such as logic or logical, which come from this particular Greek word. If you were to go back 300 years before the time of John, that word logos had been a very important word among Greek philosophers of the day. It referred to an uncreated divine mind that gives meaning and order to the universe. Now, the Greeks didn't know him as God, but Greek philosophy said there has to be some type of intelligence by which all of this order has sprung into being. And so the logos, this is the word used to define what Greek philosophers called the fundamental principle behind the way the universe functions. 
So John's readers would have been very familiar with this term, and so he kind of, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he co-ops this term, and he uses this term to communicate to us who Jesus is. He is the logic behind the universe. He is the explanation for it all. Apart from him, nothing else makes sense. And word is a good translation of this term logos because Jesus Christ is the communication of God to man. He is God's word in human flesh. You know what a word is? It's a visible expression of an invisible thought or idea. And that's what John is saying here. Jesus is the visible word of the invisible God. Now let me tell you what this means. Uh, Notice uh, John is going to mention a few things here. To begin with, he mentions Christ in his eternal pre-existence. As the eternal logos, John says, in the beginning was the word. A literal rendering of this sentence is this. In the beginning, the word was existing. That is, before space, time, and matter came into existence, the word was in existence. So when he refers to the beginning here, he's not saying that the word had a beginning. No, he's saying that the word was already in existence. And as such, he never had a beginning. He's eternal. So the Son of God did not begin to exist the moment that he was conceived in the womb of Mary. He took on flesh, yes. Became human, yes. Entered our world as one of us, yes. However, as the creator, he was not created. He was born into our realm. What makes Christmas so spectacular is that the second member of the Godhead, of the Trinity, he became human. He stepped into our world. He took on humanity. He, he was wrapped up in human flesh. And so Bethlehem doesn't mark the time when the Son began to exist. He has always existed as the self-existent I Am who is one with God the Father. So he is eternal his eternal pre-existence. And then notice John also mentions his equal person. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that the Bible teaches that our God is three in one, one God, three persons, one God who has eternally existed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so Christmas celebrates the truth that the second member of the Trinity came into our world through a virgin womb, being born as one of us to rescue us from sin and death. Which is why his name Emmanuel is so very important. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. Which means to rescue us from our sin and death. God didn't send an angel wrapped up in human flesh. No, God didn't send some emissary wrapped in human flesh. No, God himself entered into our world. The creator stepped into creation in order to rescue that which had been corrupted by sin and death. That's what Christmas is all about. Last August, there was a story that was published by Newsweek magazine, and it reported a survey 
of how 52% of Americans say that Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. The article said this, a slight majority of American adults say that Jesus was a great teacher and nothing more in his lifetime, which several Christian leaders say is evidence that today's faithful are drifting away from traditional understanding. And so this article referenced this survey that found where 52% of U.S. adults say they believe Jesus Christ is not God. And what surprised me was that the article said nearly one-third of evangelicals in this survey agreed that Jesus isn't God, compared to 65% who said that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. You know what that tells me? It tells me we've not been preaching the gospel in the American church. We've not, been a make, we've not been making disciples and teaching our people key truths about who Jesus Christ really is. This article basically just gets at these ideas that, that they became popularized by a guy who lived in the third century. His name was Arius. He was a church leader in Alexandria, Egypt, and began to spread this idea to his followers that Jesus had a finite nature and was not God. And so his teachings became known as Arianism, and this false teaching became so pervasive that the church came together in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea to formally decry this as a heresy that was not in keeping with the Scriptures. Now, long before Arius arrived, John was dealing with these same ideas in the first century, being propagated by Gnostic influencers who were denying the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. You say, are these ideas still around? Absolutely. They're present in modern-day Jehovah Witnesses who intentionally mistranslate John 1.1 to say that Jesus was a God, not the God. Why, is the, why are these ideas so very popularized? I'll tell you why. Because the enemy of all souls wants to keep people in the dark as to who this Christ of Bethlehem really is. He is not just some good teacher. In fact, if he were not God, he wouldn't be a good teacher because he claimed to be God. And if he weren't who he claimed to be, we'd call him a lunatic. It's what uh, C.S. Lewis called the trilemma. Either he's a liar, he's lunatic, or he's Lord. John says, let me tell you something, he is Lord. He is God wrapped up in human flesh. The eternal Lagos through whom creation itself exists. So his eternal person, his equal person, what about his essential power? Because verse 2, John says that he was in the beginning with God. And notice he goes on, and, 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 and look at what he says in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So at least two times here in these verses, John uses the expression, in the beginning. And he does that intentionally. He's intentionally using the same language as Genesis 1.1. The eternal word was in the beginning with God as the agent through whom the whole of creation came into being. All things were made through him. Life in the universe came into existence through him. It was through the word that everything came into being, the universe and everything within it. 
In fact, if you go to the creation account and you read through Genesis 1, you'll notice that there's a, there's a, a common refrain that's used over and over again for the sake of emphasis, and that refrain is this, and God said, and God said, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was brooding over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. Boom, there was light, baby. Right there in just the first two, three verses of the Bible, you've got the triune nature of Almighty God revealed. God the Father, God the Son, who is the Word, the eternal Word of the living God, and the Spirit of God hovering over it all. And that's what John is saying here. So God's omnipotent, sovereign Word is the agent of creation. And who is he? It's Christ. He's the wisdom and the logic behind it all. This is something that we see repeated throughout the Psalms. For example, Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Proverbs 3:19. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth, and by understanding he established the heavens. You get into Proverbs chapter 8 and wisdom is personified. The writer of Proverbs used the language of personification to describe the wisdom of God. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. I've been established from everlasting and from the beginning before there ever was in earth. I was beside him as a master craftsman. Daily I was his delight, rejoicing always before him. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All who hate me love death. That's wisdom speaking there. And when you understand that, in in light of the context of what John is saying here in verse number one, who is that wisdom? Who is this word? It's Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. That's who it is. The one through whom creation itself has come into existence. Paul says the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. He says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That word consist means hold together. What is it that's holding this universe together? It's the word that's holding all things together. It's the power of the Son of God that's holding all things together. If it weren't for him, things would just disappear into oblivion. But no, he's upholding all things by his sovereign word of power. And scientists often are baffled and they try to explain away the atom and all of the nuclear power and all that holds the atom together. You know what holds it together? It's not what holds it together. It's who holds it together. It's the Son of God, the incarnate word, the eternal word of the living God. And we're worried about all kinds of stuff in our lives, aren't we? 
And we claim to know this word. Why would I ever be worried about what's going on in the world? If he's upholding all things by his word of power, why in the world would I live as his follower with fear and anxiety and worry and trepidation over every little thing? I need to be reminded who this Christ of Christmas really is. John says, let me tell you who he is. He is the eternal Lagos through whom creation itself has come into existence. Now, there's a second thing. Not only is he the eternal Lagos, but John wants us to know that this Christ of Christmas is the everlasting life in whom salvation is given. Look at what he says there in verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. One of the things that we've noticed in our study through 1 John is the way that he uses certain words to describe the nature of God. Words like light, life, love. Well, you'll notice that he's using those same words here in his gospel in reference to Jesus Christ. He is the eternal word made flesh in whom is everlasting life. And that word life appears multiple times throughout the New Testament. But in fact, there are three Greek words translated as life in the New Testament, and each of these words have different shades of meaning. We've seen the same thing with the word love. We've got one word in English to express love. There were several in, in Greek. We've got one word in English to describe life. Well, there are at least three in Greek. What are those words? Well, to begin with, there was a Greek word, bios, which refers to the life of the physical body. Our English word, biology, comes from this particular word. It's the word that Jesus used when he's giving the parable of the sower, and he talks about how the seed fell among thorns, which represent those who heard the word, but they go out and are immediately the word is choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this bios, life, physical life, the things we see, the stuff associated with physical life. So bios, this is the word used when emphasis is placed on the physical life of someone in the world. There's a second word that's used, translated as life in the New Testament, and it's the word suke. Uh, if bios refers to physical life, suke refers to psychological life. Think psyche, psychological. Issues related to the mind, the emotion, the will, the soul. You know that man is more than just material. He is, there's an immaterial part of who we are. Think soul here. This is the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 16 when he says, whoever wants to save his life... The word he uses here is suke. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his suke, life, for my sake, will find it. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the self-will as it originates deep within the human soul. The part of you that wants to be in charge. The part of you that wants to reserve the right to run your own life. Suke. Bios, physical life. Suke, psychological life. There's a third word that's used throughout the New Testament. Now listen to this. It's the word zoe. Zoe. What does zoe mean? 
Zoe is the biblical word that's used to refer to the uncreated eternal life of God. The divine life uniquely possessed by God. Think of the spirit of life, the breath of life, the life of God. Now what word do you think is being used here in John 1, 4 when it says, in him was life? Is it bios, physical? That's not the word that's being used here. Is it suke, psychological? That's not the word that's being used here. No, the word that's being used here is the word zoe, eternal life, divine life. The kind of life that God wants you to possess. The kind of life that you need if you're going to live forever. The kind of life that you need if there's to be any hope for you eternally. Now folks, let me tell you something. We live in a world that prioritizes bios, the physical life. And worships suke, the psychological life. Nobody wants to give any emphasis to the divine life, Zoe. You want to know why? I'll tell you why. Because every single human being who's ever been born has been born into spiritual death and is in desperate need of the life of God, Zoe. You go back to creation and you see how Adam, when Adam sins against God, what did God tell Adam? He said, Adam, the day that you eat this fruit, you will die. Now, biologically, physically emotionally, think about Adam. He went on to live to be what, 960? So in the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. What's God referring to here? Let me tell you what happens when Adam sins against God. Adam dies spiritually. And the man that God had made in his own image, after he sins against God, before he sinned, he walked with God in the cool of the day. He enjoyed fellowship with God God created him in his own image, and the Bible says God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God has created humanity with the capacity to know God, to possess the divine life of God, and that's what man has got to have, and that's what God gave man originally, but when man sinned against God, what happens? Spiritually, he dies, and every single person who's ever been born ever since has been born into this same spiritual death. And you think you're going to find life with the stuff of life, bios, you're so preoccupied with the stuff of life and the cares and the pleasures of life. Or you think you're going to find life with suke, psychologically, emotionally, the self-will. No, you need Zoe life. You need the life of God. And John says, listen, let me tell you about the word that became flesh who entered into our spiritual death and darkness so that he could impart to us divine life. And this is the hope of salvation. That's why Jesus said in John 10.10, I've come that they might have life, Zoe, and have it more abundantly. That's why he says in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the Zoe life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Why is there physical death? Well, physical death is a reality simply because of the spiritual death that's true because of sin and alienation. It's the curse of sin. Oh, but Jesus Christ came to reverse sin's curse by becoming a curse for us on the cross of Calvary. 
And the reason I'll never die is because I've come to possess Zoe life through Jesus Christ. My outer man is perishing every day, but my inner man, oh, it's being renewed day by day by his own spirit. And his Listen, the Christian life, it's the life of Christ in you as a believer. Have you come to possess Zoe life? So Zoe life, this isn't something vague. This is the wonderful person of Jesus. In him is life, John says. He's the divine life, the eternal life that we can be in possession of. So who is the Christ of Christmas? He's the eternal logos through whom creation exists. He's the everlasting life in whom salvation is given. But then notice third and finally, this Christ of Christmas, John says that he is the enduring light by whom the darkness is overcome. John says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some translations say the darkness has not comprehended it. So again, life and light, these are two of John's favorite words. Jesus Christ is the life and light of God. Light's often associated with truth. Truth is often pictured as light. I mean, even in our understanding, when we say that a person has gained wisdom in some area, we say that that person has been enlightened. And so Christmas is all about the light of the world making his entrance into man's fallen, darkened, sin-cursed world. How has he made his entrance? How has his light begun to shine in the darkness? Well, go over to, John, uh, to Luke's gospel. Go to Luke chapter 1. And I want you to see what was announced to Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 The scripture says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Galilee of all places. Such a fact would have absolutely elicited amazement in the first century world. Most of them were not looking for the Messiah. And those who were looking for the Messiah would not expect him to appear in Galilee of all places. Gabriel shows up in Galilee to announce the news that the Son of God is making his entrance into the world. Light is dawning. Galilee was a rugged area in the northern uh, part of Israel, some 60, 70 miles away from Jerusalem, and it was predominantly known for its Gentile population. Isaiah chapter 9, Matthew, in his gospel, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, and here's what he says, Galilee of the Gentiles... The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. And notice the prophet doesn't say, from them a light has dawned, because this light doesn't originate from man's world. (laughs) 
I'm about to have her shout and fit, y'all. This is a light that has done, it's come from another world. This is the eternal light. This is the light of God that is now about to dawn upon man's dead, darkened world. So it's a wonderful fact when you consider that God, when he sent the light into our world, he chose to announce this news to a place that was predominantly Gentile. Not predominantly Jewish, but predominantly Gentile, which means our God is a God who has a heart for the nations of the world and longs for the nations of the world to come to know the life and light of God. So you read on in Luke, Gabriel comes to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Verse 28, he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So essentially what you find in these verses is a summary of the righteous life, the sacrificial death, and the glorious reign of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Gabriel has something to say about the identity of this child who's going to be born, the name that he's to be given. Jesus, it means the Lord is salvation. He doesn't just give you salvation. Jesus is your salvation. That's the idea here. So with the birth of this child will be the fulfillment of all prophetic hope and anticipation. Here is the one of whom the prophet foretold, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government's going to be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And let me tell you something, this light that stepped into man's world has overcome the darkness of man's world. And so the message, it doesn't simply end with the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and then our own personal salvation. You know what the light of God involves? Listen to me. God the Father has given to God the Son the throne of David, and he shall reign forever and ever And the story ends with King Jesus ruling over a kingdom that is without end. And this is our blessed hope, men and women. This is our blessed hope. So the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The idea is the light of God is shining in the darkness of man's world, and man's fallen world, under the influence of the evil one, is not able to suppress the light is not able to vanquish the light, is not able to overcome the light. You can nail it to a cross, but you can't extinguish the light. You can bury it in a tomb, but you can't bury the light. You can throw it to the lions, but you can't put out the light. You can criminalize it in a courtroom, but you can't put out the light. You can behead it on a beach, but you can't put out the light. The light still shines. And I say shine on King Jesus. You know, when I was a kid, 
I guess like most children, I love to see Christmas come. There's something magical about it bound up in a child's heart. I love to see Christmas come. But I hated to see it go. Now as an adult, I still like to see it come, but you know, I like when life gets back to normal too. But as a kid, I remember on Christmas night just feeling so sad, even to the point of tears when I'd have to go to bed. All the Christmas presents had been opened. The Christmas tree looked naked. The bones of the Christmas turkey had been picked clean. Family had come, family was leaving, and it's almost as if to me as a kid that with the stroke of midnight on December 26, Christmas died. Did you ever try to wrap your presents back up and try to recreate it when you were a kid? Just because you hated to see it end. But you know something? Let me tell you what John says about the Christ of Christmas. The fact of the matter is that Christmas doesn't come and go. It's here. Amen. And it's very much an ever-present reality for the children of God. Jesus himself is the meaning of Christmas. As the Lagos, the life, and the light of God. And he's making all things new, isn't he? Let's stand for prayer this morning. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus Christ, and you've never by faith believed the gospel, repented of your sins, placed your faith and trust in him, then why not now? Why not this Christmas season receive the gift of Zoe life? Don't be so preoccupied with your life in this world, bios, physical life, or suke, psychological life, emotional. Listen, it's the divine life of God which you need and which you have if you're a believer in Jesus. And Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, Zoe, and have it more abundantly. Here in just a moment, we're going to sing. If you need to be saved, I invite you to slip out of where you've been seated. I'd love to pray with you. We've got some pastors here. We'd love to pray with you, even speak with you after the service is over. Talk to you about baptism, church membership. We invite you to come. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for the Christ of Christmas. The eternal word made flesh who stepped into our world, a messy world. Lord, to rescue us, to save us, to give us divine life, to give us hope. And the light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light has overcome the dark. And Lord, we long for your kingdom. May Christ be preached among the nations. May people who are far from God come to know Jesus Christ in a saving way. And receive him as their personal savior. Use us as missionaries, Lord, to this world. May we let the light of God in us shine brightly so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.